Melang. Hello, everyone. My name is Tsukhuputu, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, today, I will be speaking about, well, we will be speaking about austerity and the implication of austerity. And for people who do not know the technical term, austerity just means budget cuts. And I think that this is a very relevant conversation to be having because last week, the president announced that they will be cutting or stopping the COVID relief of distress fund, which was rolled out to help households with dealing with this COVID catastrophe um, and its effect on, on individuals, households and businesses. So we're also going to see subsidies um, that were given to businesses and subsidies for other public goods being cut as well, because the government essentially is saying that it's unaffordable to keep spending this way and that also they want to save money so they don't have to incur debt in the future. So I think that it's a good and interesting discussion to be having, very relevant. And I think that my guest today, Busi Sebeko from the Institute of Economic Justice, is the perfect person to facilitate this discussion. She is an economist and a researcher who does very good and admirable work. Um, I find her work very interesting, and that's why she's on the show, obviously. Um, I think she's a good person to facilitate this discussion and share some insights on them. So, Busi, please can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and then just go into to what austerity is and, and why it is a policy option that is used and, and what we should be looking out for. And before that, to just thank you again for taking the time to have this discussion with us and for sharing your wisdom and some of your work and insights with us. Very excited to hear. No, thank you for having me here. <laughs> um, I guess all you said, I'd introduce myself. So um, yeah, I'm Busi Sibego and I work at the Institute for Economic Justice. I'm a researcher and economist, um, and I mainly focus on macroeconomic policies. Um, and if, you know, breakdown is more like budget sort of work, budget analysis, um, tax analysis, um, and pro-employment macroeconomic policies are sort of my areas. Um, and of course, including feminist economics, which works across board in all our projects in the Institute. So applying, trying or attempting to apply feminist lens um, to all that work. Awesome. Um, can you tell us a bit about the IEJ, actually? I think that would yeah. be an interesting start. <laughs> yes, yes. No, the IEJ is a, is a non-governmental organization. It's a civil society organization. Um, and it's basically a policy, an economic policy think tank um, that that is uh, based on giving progressive policy options um, to government and as well as other actors in civil society. So we are, yeah, we're a bit of a hybrid organization, which is quite unique um, because we operate in the civil society space. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, we bring that technical expertise in a particular way, which is different, um, yeah, in the context of South Africa, I suppose. Mm, very interesting. Um... And could you tell us a bit about austerity and what it means? Um, so, yeah, like just in general, austerity as an economic theory and also its implication on COVID right now. 
Yeah, okay. So let me start by um, giving quite a very high level to say that I think most people understand austerity in a very simplified way. And there's many extended definitions. And the basic definition is to say that we say it's austerity when there are budget cuts or tax increases and not just any tax increase, but regressive tax increases. So tax increases that impact the poor the most um, during a period of low growth. And I think that's critical um, because in our arguments um, as the Institute and as the Budget Justice Coalition, we've said South Africa has been implementing austerity for a long period of time, right? So here's the distinction. There's fiscal consolidation, um, which is basically reducing the budget and what we saw in the recent budgets. But when you undertake fiscal consolidation during a period of low growth, then it's austerity. If you undertake fiscal consolidation during any other period of time, <laughs> then it's not like as in high growth context, then it's not austerity. Um, and and I think just to take it a step further um, is to say that austerity has many definitions, which um, you know the literature um, expands on, and it's not just limited to those two things, which is how we traditionally learn about them, about austerity rather in this educational context. But to say austerity can extend to things like um, government not spending in real terms, so not keeping up with what is needed. So if the healthcare sector in South Africa, which is true actually, is is not growing fast enough to um, deliver to the the population growth as well as the high medical price inflation. Then, in fact, the num the amount that you're spending over time is declining, right? In terms of like absolute, it looks like it's growing in absolute numbers when you look at it, but actually when you look at like per capita expenditure, per person expenditure, it's actually declining over time. Um, there's also austerity can be defined by the reassignment of funds away from investments in the public sector. We've seen that in, in construction um, in particular, which is very interesting now because there's a, this whole big hoo-ha around um, infrastructure. But when you look at the trends, um, the government has been systematically declining um, investment in, in CapEx and partly because of the state-owned entities. Um, and of course, there's, there's other things as well as, you know, the government's failure. Is, austerity can also be a, a government's failure in terms of policy to close the gap between a country's actual and potential GDP. And of course, we, can, we all can see that South Africa is, is performing um, below its potential GDP. And then, of course, the last one I'll, I'll give here, I think there's another one, but the last one I'll give here is to say austerity can also be tight monetary policy you know, which is characterized by high interest rates um, and an overvalued exchange rate. And we've all seen um, the cases around APSA and other banks and the collusions around the exchange rate. Uh, but not just that, we, you know, we know that SARB, the South African Reserve Bank, really underutilizes monetary policy in South Africa to make borrowing costs cheaper for government itself. And in this period, in fact, we've seen Wuti, you know, the 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 cost of borrowing has declined significantly for government. And part of that is because of the the, the decreases in the interest rate um, lead to government's borrowing costs also declining. So you've spoken a lot about austerity and like the technical aspect of austerity. And you've given us some examples of how the state has been using austerity as of late. Um, I want to know specifically um, what alternatives there are to austerity um, that the state can take on that is helpful and will will help to fill this gap 
um, this growth gap that we were talking about, well, that you've just mentioned, and also just help to improve the quality of life of people, specifically during this COVID time. Yeah, so I'll try to break them into two. The first one is that um, during a period of low growth, and this is, you know, I'm hoping your listeners are uh, <laughs> your listeners are more from the economics front, but to say, you know, there's the Keynesian economics, which says, you know, during a period of low growth, you need expansionary fiscal policy, meaning you need to spend more into the economy to basically boost demand or the shortfall in demand during the period of crisis, um, but also, you know, to develop long-term supplies. So, you know, in, in, in a paper that I published, I talk about a fiscal stimulus for South Africa to say basically we, how we spend today determines what our economy looks like tomorrow. And it's critical that not only that we have expansionary fiscal policy, but that we spend money in ways that um, improve or change the composition of our economy. So in, in this paper, of course, I look at um, these principles, there's 10 principles that are outlined, um, some of which include investments into like high employment absorption sectors. Um, it includes expenditure on like environmentally progressive, uh, environmentally progressive future. So we want a green new deal in a way, if you want to put it in that simplistic way. Um, and also spending on like the purple economy and the purple economy refers to the care economy. Um, but importantly, I think the principles put forward is spending on people, spending to reduce inequality, spending where governments, um, money makes the big impact. And in fact, there it's really about saying what we think makes economies grow, um, you know, in terms of like the traditional masculine sectors is not always what is needed in terms of to develop high fiscal multipliers. And by that, I, you know, I'll give an example. We say um, spending on children actually has a higher return um, on government expenditure, that it's actually worthwhile and that, even though you only see the fiscal multipliers as in how that money trickles out into the economy, that's the simplest way I can define it. Um, in the long run, it's actually such, it has such high returns, you know, it's, it's an investment. Um, and in fact, you know, I think I still hold to believe that social expenditure is economic expenditure and, and, and the distinction there of this focus on like, you know, just like productive sector and business. And in fact, um, not to say that we shouldn't spend on that, that's important as well, but to say that we need to look at our economic policies holistically um, to be able to change the reality of South Africans. Um, and so what should government be doing is the second component is to say that during this period of crisis, particularly what we needed was um, to go big, go early, go household, which is what the international evidence in terms of what governments have done worked best during crisis moments um, shows us that's the best approach. So what we needed to do is have a sizable stimulus package or, or rescue package. In fact, let me put it this way. We needed a rescue package, then we needed a stimulus you know, and stabilization, and then we needed to structurally transform. So those were the three components that we needed to have. Um, and the emergency rescue package was not sufficient, um, as we know, because one, the net increase in the budget itself is only 36 billion, even though, you know, 500 billion is what is announced. But when we look at what government is spending, the net increase is only 36 billion. Um, of course, the monetary policy components are coming through there with, you know, credit creation, um, the 200 billion, um, and, you know, and so forth. But to say that 
we needed a sizable like response and that was not enough um given the the massive need um and in fact i think the best way to have protected households would have been to give a universal basic income grant um to everyone and and one that would have been easier to implement we saw that sasa had many issues implementing the 350 rand um social distress relief grant um which was for the unemployed people but even then you know the it was quite narrow and um being what do you call it uh qualifying for it was quite difficult and there were many rules and stringent rules at that um for who would qualify um and so you know the easiest way would have been to implement a universally based a universal basic income grant which is also um progressive on the gender front um because of course we know that women who received the caregiver grant which was a new introduction to South Africa um couldn't apply as well for the unemployment grant so to speak um and so then it disproportionately means that you know of course the 500 rand went a long way but it's to say that if you have children ultimately you disqualify from from the from the unemployment grant even though the children technically are the beneficiaries of these grants and not necessarily you um so yeah so there's a lot of complexities around that so what needed to be done is that we needed to protect households but also importantly we needed to really implement that 500 billion no matter how inadequate it was right to say that we needed to save businesses and the latest that i've seen around the loans for business to help them survive um fall below 14 billion i think it was 13.9 billion only of the 200 billion has been given to businesses or lent lent out lent out <laughs> to business so in fact um you know we are failing at massive fronts i can't tell you from where i'm sitting um how the 20 billion has been utilized for health um in preparing us for the response and we know a second wave is coming So those are sorts of the things to say that yes you know we should have ideally had a bigger emergency response package that catered to people but two we should have implemented the 500 billion we would be in a very different place if we'd actually implemented the 500 billion we know in the second quarter that you know growth contracted by 16.4% on a quarter on quarter basis um and we also know that 2.2 million jobs were shed from the economy and and I can't stress enough whether you know the possibility that we could have had a different reality if the 500 billion was actually implemented as had been you know announced sure i hear you yo you said a lot um very insightful you know? no this is good i'm like writing everything down um i really like the go big go early go household um and it's just unfortunate that we missed that moment and yeah that we probably won't be able to recover um very soon um but since this moment has been missed what so do you think like um your previous answer on austerity is the way to undo this missed moment or do you think um like we need to go back to the the drawing board essentially and think of a new plan because i think that we've moved past this time that we could go big go early and go household since we are late you know um yep. what do you, what do you think about that <laughs> we're definitely late i mean you can also just check like when the the announcements for lockdown were made like march versus when the budgets were tabled which is june and the emergency response package itself tabled there were such great delays there you know um and 
the only way we could have rectified this, or not the only way actually, but a way that we could have rectified this is that in the MTBPS, we needed to make, or, or government rather, needed to present a budget that took into account the failures of the 500 billion, the implementation, the state capacity, the corruption. They needed to decisively tackle that and they didn't, right? What they proposed was, um, you know, they want to achieve a surplus, um, even though in the supplementary budget it said they want to achieve a surplus in 2023, it's now 2025, it's like a five-year program now. So five years of fiscal consolidation during a period of low growth is obviously austerity. And in the research, you know, research paper that I wrote, the cost austerity lessons for South Africa, and basically shows that in countries where they implemented austerity after the financial crisis, um, it only exacerbated the situation further, right? It led to um, increasing rates of unemployment. It led to a higher debt-to-GDP ratio. It led to, you know, just like it did not make the economies better. And in fact, I continuously say, um, you know, the examples that I used are so polarizing. Why doesn't anybody say we can't have fiscal or government rather say we shouldn't implement fiscal policy or fiscal consolidation because we'll end up like Greece? Um, because that's what Greece did, right? After the financial crisis, they implemented a lot of fiscal um, consolidation, which led to like, you know, excessive uh, debt to GDP ratios and so forth. I think critically, it's we need to understand that debt to GDP is a ratio that is dependent on GDP. And if GDP is not growing, debt to GDP will increase continuously, right? Fiscal consolidation depresses the economy further, right? Because you have to remember that government expenditure is a critical component of our income, AKA GDP, right? It makes up about 30% of our GDP, in fact. So this is not to say we should just spend 100% of our GDP. I mean, that's not how economics works. But it's to say that rapidly cutting budgets has a, a, a negative impact on the GDP itself. And so if we can't fix that, and this goes back to the larger macroeconomic issue, which is to say our macroeconomic policies are not geared toward, towards growth. In fact, the reasons we're not growing is because of our neoliberal macroeconomic policies. So we almost have to go back. Um, and at this point, you know, the budget should have, you know, addressed, like I said, those issues, introduce a stimulus and so forth. But to say we now need to use this moment, one, to reflect on our macroeconomic policies generally. We need pro-employment macroeconomic policies that are um, gender aware, that are environmentally aware, that are progressive, really, if I could put it in a banner that way. Um, and, you know, to say... What can the February budget do? I mean, ideally, I'd like to see the president announce that they'll extend the social grants, for instance, in the, in the next week or two. That'd be great. Uh, but in, in the likelihood that that will happen. But what does our February budget look like? Are we going to pursue this fiscal consolidation? Even though we've been fiscally consolidating for the last decade, you know, so we've actually been fiscally, because if you look at our budget from 2012 already, um, we're talking about fiscal consolidation, yet despite all these efforts at fiscal consolidation, debt to GDP has increased over the last 10 years. So, yeah, it's really about reimagining, um, rethinking, um, you know, not necessarily throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but to say that we need to reconsider this whole setup entirely. Yeah, I think that this like discussion on like rethinking 
the neoliberal um, macroeconomic tools and viewpoints that we use is important. And what I wanted to ask you actually is how you think we can get ourselves out of this situation considering big financiers like the IMF and the World Bank advocate for austerity. And coming out of COVID, they have signed agreements with lots of countries to take up austerity to repay some of these emergency COVID grants that were given. So how do you see us moving past this situation and being entangled in this like neoliberalism and um, that that preaches austerity uh, just off the top of your head, obviously, it's a it's quite a contentious question. It's a million dollar question. <laughs> um, I mean, I think okay, there, there's there's multiple things that need to happen. I think at a at a global level, um, there is a, a deep need for global like a solidarity. You know, a, a global fiscal consolidarity is what I've called it actually in the past. Um, but to say that. You know, the logics of the IMF and the World Bank, even though they will say that they're changing their ways, that, you know, their um, their approaches are changing, but to fundamentally acknowledge that they are deeply underpinned um, by orthodox economics, right? So the way out for me is that, you know, yes, South Africa can make its own policies that uh, counter the global trends, but we know that the, you know, you get punished at the global scale for that sort of approach, you know? Um, you get punished if you don't fall into the neoliberal um, structures in a perfect way that makes, you know, whoever happy. Mm-hmm. How is that be happy? So, so therefore, our struggle is twofold, is to challenge it on a global scale, but also to challenge it at a local scale. Um, at the local scale, we certainly have underutilized the room that we have. South Africa certainly has more room um, to change the realities of South Africans than we than we use. I mean, things like a net wealth tax, right? Like South Africa is deeply, deeply in income and wealth um, unequal, right? Those are things that you can resolve um, and things that would, you know, even in the neoliberal framework um, be considered okay, if we put it like that, you know what I mean? So Africa definitely um, under taxes in terms of net wealth, even compared to, you know, some of the OECD countries. So there's certainly scope there to redistribute resources better in terms of, you know, wealth um, and income. So those are some of the things that, you know, that we could do in South Africa. And I think what is critical in the South African context is that we need to open up the real meaningful substantive dialogue um, there's a lot of rhetoric around, you know, we're interested to pe- in people's ideas. Um, we are interested to explore and want to solve together. But at the same time, I, and, and sitting from the place where I sit is to say, despite all the countless events and activisms we undertake, that the uptake of our proposals and the meaningful engagement of them is lacking continuously, you know. So we've got a budget process, the budget goes out, um, we are given a couple of days of civil society, you know, it's actually due, I think, tomorrow now, the response to the budget in terms of the fiscal framework, which, you know, is, is quite a bit ridiculous, given that the the budget itself was tabled on the 28th. So we've got a couple of days to come back and criticize and give alternative solutions. Um, and we go and we present and we do this great work and research. We do media engagements. We do everything. But ultimately, it doesn't change the fact that by the time the budget comes to, you know, is tabled, it's almost like a given. 
um, there hasn't been instances where these participatory forums, or at least in my knowledge, have yielded a different result in terms of the budget, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's really to say, like, are these, these processes tokenistic? What's happening, you know, like, and, you know, so it, 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 it's, it's quite challenging, I think, um, in the South African context. But I think one thing in reimagining our economy is that it starts with reimagining what participation and true participation looks like for South Africans. Mm. Um, and this is not just Lucy with the technical expertise. Um, economics is, you know, there's that quote by Hajun Chan, I think. It says, economics is far too important to be left to experts alone, critically, right? So... Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, it starts with that to me. It's, it's to say we've got a global challenge, we've got a domestic challenge, but these both require uh, an opening in, in people's, like, imaginations. And imaginations, I mean, people's willingness um, to open those spaces of power because ultimately, you know, economics is a set of decisions that is defined by power relations. That's what economics is. It's a set of decisions about, you know, how power permeates racialized capitalism and patriarchy are power relations that make the economies work in particular ways um, with decisions that are made for economies to work in particular ways. And so I think, yeah, it's a million dollar question. And, and, and I don't really, I don't think I have a, 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 this is where we enter component, but to just say that it's, yeah, it's, it's a very challenging place to be because I hear people say a lot, like, you know, we're no longer going back to normal. We can't go back to the status quo, you know, everything like that. But then when you actually look at the policy proposals, they're really everything the status quo wants. Um, and so <laughs> we almost have to be continuously critical about that um, and can't lay low and, and think that everyone is is reimagining economies um, as a result of COVID like other people might be. Yeah, um, just on that, on that discussion of uh, civil society, like doing all of this work, but um, things already kind of being set, um, how do we mobilize against the implementation of austerity and other um, economic decisions that are made that really aren't pro, like, development in our understanding as like South Africans? I think we need mass mobilization. <laughs> I, feel, I think about this a lot, but um, we need mass mobilization. I don't think there is any other way at this point. South Africans in the 90s fought against privatization um, very strongly. And I think this current moment is interesting because, you know, people are like, you know, let's just privatize this com, let's just privatize this AA, you know. But people forget that in the 90s, we fought against privatization and you know south africans won Mm. in time you know people knew people in townships knew people knew what privatization meant you know Mm -hmm. and in the way i think critically now i mean there's multiple avenues you know i've been conducting this research around um advocacy and it's it's really we need multiple avenues we need the legal challenges just like black sash um and kells are challenging the the stopping of the grants we need those legal challenges that say this is unconstitutional you know we probably need legal um challenges to say this budget itself is unconstitutional and i don't think we've really had that or at least in the in the time i've been i've been in civil society for a short space but so we need a multi 
pronged approach, which is this mass mobilization on the ground. It has to be ground up. People know what austerity is. People are experiencing austerity every day, right? People are going to clinics, waiting three hours. That's austerity. It means they've cut um, or they've frozen vacant posts and therefore there aren't enough doctors at the clinic. And that's why you have to wait for like five hours to see a doctor. That's austerity. That's what austerity does. People are experiencing austerity every day. Mm. Um, roads. Um, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> an the economy. Problem. You know what I mean? All of these things, people are experiencing it. And I think it's critical to give people the language um, to be able to say, this is what we're experiencing. And it's a collective experience. It's not just Busi who lives in Alex who's experiencing this, but it's also so-and-so from the rural areas experiencing this. Teho from... You know what I mean? We, we yeah. are all experiencing this because of government's choice of policies. Austerity is political. The choice of austerity is political. It's not just a technical decision. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's a man-made condition. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And we have to say that the economy, we are all part of the economy and the economy belongs to all of us. And how do we want to shape it in ways that reflect that truly? You know? Because... Ultimately, yeah, like I think, you know, mass mobilization, that's, to me, that's the only way out. Mass mobilization, and, and, and like I said, in various capacities and ways, we have to challenge austerity. Um, but also, I think critically, the again, it's always about challenging power. I think, yes, power can come from below, but we also need people who are higher up to be able to challenge this, or people who already have privileges in these spaces, you know? Um, we know within NEDLAC, there's certain voices that are reflected there, and those voices, I mean, I work with the labor unions at NEDLAC, they are anti-austerity, right? But we need business on our side. We need, you know, that's really it. It's like if business joined with um, with civil society and the labor unions, maybe we might shift the needle a bit more, um, but it's really about how do we make sure across board we are on the same page because ultimately austerity hurts us all. It hurts business. We've just seen what's happened in COVID to businesses, right? And with the lack of support, it means that most of them, you know, those ones who are suffering won't survive, Um, you know? And so it is critical that we all acknowledge that, you know, that austerity will only make the poor poorer in South Africa and therefore lead to a humanitarian crisis of sorts, which will make life quite challenging for those who are wealthy. <laughs> so we all have invest, vested interest in this. Mm, we mm. do. And so if we can all get on the same page, because I hear people all the time saying, yeah, you know, we can't spend more than what we have. Um, we don't have the money, but I'm like, do you know what the costs of human lives are? Do you know mm-hmm. the cost of like a revolution are? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, war. Like, 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 you know what I mean? Like, do you know yeah, what no. to get there? And also, just like reviving a dead economy is way harder mm-hmm. 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 than saving the one you have. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, that's, that's where we are. Cool. Um, so, two more questions, but like more chilled. Um, I mean, relatively more chilled than like the technical ones. What do you think it'll take to get Africa to like start progressing in the way that we'd like it to progress? Um, And like that we could finally see this Africa rising narrative come to fruition Um, and like being unshackled from the Western ties. Mm. 
what do you think that looks like? Uh, yeah, you can. You can this is say the something. question. No, I was going to say you can say something idealistic if you want. It doesn't have to be like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the chill <laughs> question. <laughs> I mean, a, a culmination of literally that's that that's what I did my masters to try and understand or try cool. to about and envision. Um, and you know, actually, <laughs> it's it's like now I think after working for so long, I, I'm wondering if I've, I've I think differently about it. But I I think Pan Africanism has to be um, revived in particular ways. Um, and I I mean it starts and from my sectors it starts with government. You know, the one of the research papers I had was that. Uh, some uh, like we did an uh, pan African study where we saw that some governments, even when they had the space, fiscal space to change the realities of their citizens, they chose not to. You know, so I think critically, we need different leadership. <laughs> critically, mm-hmm. yeah, we need, we need people who are willing to reimagine. And, and again, I say this a lot reimagine because I feel like. You know, when you tell someone, I want to work in a world, I want to, I want to envision a world where we don't have to work. That's my vision. That's mm-hmm. Lucy's vision. I don't want to live in a world where I have to work. I want to work because I want to, you know? So I want to, a reality where I've got a universal basic income grant, where I can survive without having to, um, for my existence to be like based on my ability to produce. That's the world I want to live in. And I think when you tell people these things, people are like, no, that's not possible. Everyone is always going to have to work. Like there's just so much negativity. And I'm just like, you know, like sometimes we spend so much time trying to be pragmatic that we forget to reimagine and think differently. Because Mm -hmm. I think we should be starting from what is the world we want to see? And then how do we get there? Not... What is the current world and how do we make it slightly better for people? That's a reformist approach, you know? And I'm not pro for reformist approaches. Me, I'm for let's, you know, let's, <laughs> let's rematch entirely. And I think on the African continent, you know, someone said um, we need to reimagine and capture people's material needs. So this does not mean that we must live in an idealistic world, but we must deal with people's material needs right now. People can't reimagine a new world when they're hungry. You know, this is the world that they have. Mm-hmm. They've got, you know, pressing issues at hand. So what will take Africa is, yeah, reimagining and capturing people's needs. What do people need now um, to be able to also participate in this reimagining of the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. The feminist environmental future. Okay, so just one more question. Um, what kind of work is important for South Africa right now for people who want to make an impact, but also like have a livelihood, I guess. Yeah, no, no, no. And I think that's critical. I was going to mention that I, you know, I come from a corporate background. My first job was in corporate, um, and effectively did my master's and then decided I wanted a different experience, um, And this experience was influenced by multiple things. The one is that um, as an economic consultant, I felt that I didn't, I wasn't developing expertise in the field. And I knew that in economics, it's critical to have an expertise. Like you can't just be a generalist economist. You need to be um, known for something, you know? So that was one of the decisions to enter civil society was that I wanted a research job 
that would then hone in on a particular skill set and expertise. You know, so I guess the approach to civil society or organizations of this nature um, is that, you know, and think tanks and, you know, there's TIPS, there's many other organizations like this that are not necessarily civil society, but are this like research focused type of institution. Um, and I think those are great for, for building a particular expertise. Because you have to remember, in 10 years time, when you say you're an economist, people are going to say, you know, what is, they need to know what your specialty is. And when they say we want Busi, they must say we want Busi to talk about macroeconomic policy, budget, so forth. And that's just the nature of the field. It's all the field of work um, mm. in economics. Um, so critical to acknowledge what is it that you need to succeed as an economist in that professional space. You know, if expertise are it, then follow where you will get expertise, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think consulting in the private sector helped me to identify my key interests, you know. So I guess the, the advice is to say, where are you in that moment? What is it that you need to learn to get to where you want to be in the future? You know, so for me, it's, economic policy making is my ideal feature. And so if I want to be in that space, I need to be able to have a particular set of expertise. I need to be able to identify good research and conduct good research. That's mm -hmm. critical. You know? um, and need to be able to be, to view things from various perspectives. Like I think I was very civil society blind when I was in corporate. I don't think I knew what was happening in civil society, the amazing um, work that they were really doing at the time. I was quite blind to that sort of work. Um, and so being in a different sector now is helping me to develop a different type of set of skills. Um, so really, I think my advice would be, yeah, just being, just knowing when you've outgrown a place, what is it that you're trying to learn from that particular job? Um, when have you outgrown the place um, is critical because I also acknowledge that there aren't many, I, I, I think my institution is amazing, but there aren't many institutions like mine. Do you see what I mean? So mm -hmm. the supply of jobs in the, in the sector, the sorts of jobs people do economics to be a part of are limited. So I get yeah. that completely. Um, but I think even if you go into a corporate space to always be aware um, of what's happening in other sectors, you know, to, to, to not be a person who is easily indoctrinated, let me put it that way, into one sector's way of thinking, mm -hmm. but to continuously, you know, reflect and learn and grow. I think the, the best economists are people who continuously learn and grow and whose ideas change. And I know that, you know, sometimes it's quite punitive. Like if you like one day you're a socialist, the next day you're a capitalist, you know, people are going to be like, ah, she doesn't know what she wants or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Because economic social science, it is critical that we're continuously learning and unlearning. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's okay to change your mind. And I think wherever you start, and I get the material needs thing, guys, black tax is real. <laughs> we can't be yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's nice to just save the world. Yay. Like, saving the world <laughs> is at expense. Expense of, you know, and, and I think about this a lot. You know, what is what is the sacrifice of my family, of my experience? You know, mm -hmm. what am I, what are the opportunity costs? You know, we all economists, you know this, what's the opportunity cost of doing this? And so to say that as much as most people did economics for the types of jobs that exist in, in civil society, um, that, you know, civil society might not necessarily be the best paying, um, 
you know, relative to private sector, let's put it that way, or even government. Um, and I guess I didn't touch on government, but to say that's also another perfect, like, you know, perfectly fine avenue to undertake. Um, I think, and all of this is really just like, don't be complacent ever as, a, as an economist. So you can try or you can begin wherever you want to get started government, then go to civil society, then go to private sector. It doesn't matter what the progression of like, because all of them have relative power and influence, mm-hmm. right? Businesses, like I said, business is a strong voice in their lack about economic policy. So if you're in the business space, you still get a voice in a particular way, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but don't be complacent and yeah, like always seek to learn outside of your sector because then otherwise you become indoctrinated and then you are there defending high wealth, high net wealth individuals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> country where 55% of people live below the upper bound poverty line. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it doesn't make sense. So, so it's just, it's just even being in those spaces, being aware of your positionality. And of course, as a junior, you don't get to like really move things, you know, like, especially in corporates. I'm speaking from my experience in corporate. As a junior, you don't really have like the power to, to change ideology and to be realistic about that. Because I think sometimes we think, I'm going to get this job, I'm going to get there, Yazin, I'm going to change everything. <laughs> but like I said, you know, it's, it's power relations permeate throughout. Mm. Um, mm. And it's okay to be patient in, in saying that in my early 30s, I'll be able to influence this more um, directly than I can at this point in time. <laughs> Hear you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much for that. Um, really appreciate the scope of things that we spoke about right down to career advice, you know, um, <laughs> and including the um, some feedback on the budget presentation last week or this week. Um, so yeah, it's been really good. Thank you so much for uh, making the time to to do this. I really, really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your insights. No, and thank you. I think keep I, doing the things, girl. We love like seeing um, young black women doing things, you know? Yes, I need to be accessible to other young black women. You might call me now and I'm like, actually, I'm only doing this, like, I've got this interview. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is yeah. Important. It is important. And I guess maybe that's my last point. Well, guys, it's like, it's important that we break the iconocracy by making sure that we're always accessible to people Mm. who need that insight and knowledge you know it's critical thank you thank you really appreciate it and i should be putting this out maybe in a week i'll be looking out for it tag me on twitter will do cheers and keep well okay bye bye